Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. We're grateful each week. We have hundreds of people who join us uh, online. Uh, I, I really enjoy hearing from those people who travel um, and they say, you know what, even when we're traveling, we get to worship with you via the live stream. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you ever get a chance, uh, say thank you to our IT and our media team, uh, Justin Pedigo, all the team, uh, even at our campuses and the venue service at Reach Church DeSoto. You, you make sure to thank them, send them a note of kindness, because I'm telling you, uh, I hear from so many of you that are blessed by it. It doesn't happen automatically. It takes a lot of guys that are willing to sacrifice their time. Uh, our media team, they, uh, they give of their time. Uh, yesterday, uh, I'm gonna use some stuff in my sermon later, and I, I was at Saturday night service, and I asked Justin, can you add this for tomorrow? Well, guess what, he did it, but he had to work on that yesterday, um, and uh, so he took some of his time to help us. You send them a note of gratitude, because we're, boy, we're so grateful for all the work they put in to, to make this happen for us. Uh, but Reach Church DeSoto, we're, we're grateful for you, and grateful you're joining with us in the venue service down the hall. Some of you don't know, we have a service, another service right here on site, just right down the hallway, the venue service, they have their own worship, and then they live stream the message over, same message. Just different location, but uh, uh, if you've not ever been over there, you ought to experience it sometime. And we also worship on Saturday nights. I'm giving all our services here. I might as well. Saturday night's one of my favorites. Uh, if you've ever, never been on a Saturday night, sometimes when the Chiefs are playing, we get some folks who come on Saturday, and I praise God for those folks, um, but we're grateful. Um, don't forget as well, next Sunday night, uh, 5 p.m., right here in this room, we're having a business meeting and an ordination service. So we're combining the two. The business meeting will begin at 5. It'll go to about 5.30. We'll pick up with the ordination service at 5.30. It should end around 6.30. Um, it'll be an hour and a half that you'll be blessed by. Luke Polly, David Shaw, great men. We know they're called by God. We've seen the call of God in their life. We're going to affirm that call. We're going to hear testimony from them. We'll challenge those men. Um, you ought to be here. Make it a point. Um, bring your kids. It's, it's fun to see us as a church lay hands on and affirm the call of God on young men who are seeking to follow him. Special time. I want to encourage you to be here. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 7, we come this morning, and for the most part, uh, what we've seen in 1 Samuel, really apart from the birth of Samuel, is a, a lot of pain. Uh, Israel is walking in sin and disobedience. They've got some really bad religious leadership with Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. And, and whenever the, the nation goes dark, when they don't have the word of God, when the word of God is rare. See, the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. When you don't have the word of God, you're walking in the dark. And when you walk in the dark, you will stub your toe on life. And so that's what's happening to the Israelites. They're walking in sin and disobedience. And it's pain, pain, pain. They're going to uh, lose battle one. They're going to lose battle two. Hophni and Phinehas die on the field of battle. Eli dies. Phinehas' wife dies. The ark is taken. And now they're in a place of darkness. 
And yet what we see in this is that God is sovereign over every aspect of it. In this great news about God, he even takes the messes of our lives and uses them in perfect accordance with his will to turn them around for his glory. So in the midst of their pain, they're going to come to a place of turning back to God. How many of you could give testimony that it wasn't until, like the prodigal son, that you found yourself face first in the mud, dining at the table of your consequences that you finally remembered the Father's house and you turned to the Lord? And we're going to see a great turn in this nation. And it's going to inaugurate what will be considered the dynasty, the Camelot of Israel's history. It'll occur right here at a place of lamenting that will become a place of worship and victory. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Then we'll work our way through this passage. Father, we thank you for your word that is so relevant. God, it is relevant to our lives today. God, I pray that you would help us to set aside anything that would distract us from focusing upon you and hearing your still, quiet, soft voice in our lives. God, I pray that uh, this morning you would speak by means of your word, that you would bless your word. God, I was reminded this morning that we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the surpassing greatness of the value is of the Lord so that you will get all the glory. God, I pray that you would show up this morning and you would show off in our hearts and draw us to yourself and you would work in us in such a way that only you could receive the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, look with me, chapter seven, verse one. It says, and the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And so you'll remember the ark has come to Beth Shemesh, and Beth Shemesh was a Levitical city. It was the city of the Kohathites. These are the people who had the great privilege of being able to take care of the ark of God. What a wonderful privilege that was given to them. But yet in their sin and disobedience, they've lost the privilege. And now the ark will be sent to a city called Kiriath-Jerim. And Kiriath-Jerim is an interesting city. It's actually a city of Gibeonites. They're a city that made a treaty with Israel. Israel was entering the land and conquering all those Canaanites and Hittites. And the Gibeonites made a treaty and they kind of get engrafted in. But here's the point. This is a common people. They're not special. They're not of the Levitical line. This is just a common people that will take the ark of God gladly and receive it. And it's a good reminder that God will dwell with those who will receive him in gladness and humility. And so the people of Kerath-Jerim, they take the ark of God and they consecrate it. There's a picture here that they take this seriously. While they take it gladly, they also take it in great humility, in fear and reverence to God. They'll consecrate Eliezer. We're going to set this guy aside, a special, under this work of taking care of the ark of God. And, and from what we know, it'll be there 20 years until uh, David will sin to get it uh, before bringing it to the city of David. Uh, but, but the picture you see here is that it carries Jerim for a good bit of time. What we know of it is that it becomes a great blessing to the people of Kiriath Jerim. So the, the picture here is in, in, with the Philistines, the ark of God was a terror. They couldn't get rid of it quick enough. 
the people of Israel. It was a terror to them. The Lord takes 50,070 men. But then it goes to carry out Jerim, and it becomes a blessing. What has happened? What changed? Well, I'll tell you this much. God didn't change. The ark of God didn't change. I'll tell you what changed is how the people responded to God. See, if you will not respond to God in fear and respect of his glory and holiness, if you will not respond to him in humble submission, he will become a terror to you. But if you will respond to God in fear and respect and humble submission, can I tell you, God will become a great delight to your life. And so the people of Kerioth, Jerim, Take the ark, it'll be there for 20 years. And it says there at the end of verse two that the people of Israel lamented after the Lord. They're in a place of great sadness. They're in a place of great pain because even though, even though the ark has been returned to them, there's still a sense of Ichabod over this nation. That the glory of God is still absent from this nation and there's no worship of God in the temple at Shiloh. Shiloh's gone. There's no tabernacle. There's no offering the sacrifices. The ark is still not in its rightful place. And so in the absence of worship and and sacrifice unto the Lord, they're in a place of depression. They're in a place of of sadness. What they've realized is they've gotten rid of the one thing that made life livable, which was the presence of God. And yet here, they're, they're, they brought low. You know, I, I was thinking of, as I thought of this, and kind of the elimination of the offering of sacrifices at the temple with the ark and worship of God corporately there. It reminded me a little bit of when we went through COVID and initially we had to shut down, just kind of trying to figure things out. By the way, we ain't shutting down again. Just know that we ain't doing that again, all right? So we learned our lesson there. Um, But I don't know about you, but one of the most depressing things was preaching to a camera. And I realized we need this. Listen, there is no substitute for gathering corporately as the people of God and singing praises together towards him. God designed us this way. And when you don't have that, there is sadness. There is depression. And so that's where this nation's at. They're lamenting after the Lord. They they, they don't have the one thing. They can have all the other stuff, but they don't have God. It's all sadness. But God's going to use it. God's going to take them in their place of sadness and hopelessness and he's going to use it as an opportunity to turn them back to him you know i was reminded of this every great revival that our nation has known and there hasn't been a great revival in over a century but every great revival our nation has known has always been preceded by two things national pain and prayer Every great revival is is preceded by pain. That God brings a people low when they've kind of run out of themselves and they know that there's only one place to turn and that is to the Lord. And then people, guess what they do? When you get desperate enough, guess what you'll do? There's no atheist in a foxhole. You ever heard that? You get desperate enough, you'll start praying. That always, 
would we be so bold to pray, Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this nation to a place of prayer and revival? Would we be bold enough to pray that? You remember Elijah, he wanted a revival to come to the nation of Israel. And guess what he prayed? Lord, bring a drought on us. He was calling down fire on his own head because he realized the nation could have all the physical blessings in the world, but if they don't have God, what does it matter? So God is gonna take this nation in a place of humility and hopelessness. He's gonna use it to draw them to himself. Look at verse three. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, then he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel has probably been preaching this same message all along. He's been preaching a message of repentance. I just don't think they've been listening. But now he begins to preach to them and he says to them, you gotta turn to the Lord with all your heart. Now turn there, it's really repentance. So you need to repent, you need to recognize the sinfulness of your path and you need to turn and go a new direction and you need to turn to the Lord with all your heart. Samuel is speaking to them what I think they're beginning to realize that it's not about the physical presence of the ark and it's not about a location and it's not about a temple. What God wants most is your heart. And so you've got to give your heart, got to get your heart right. Turn to the Lord with all your heart and remove all the foreign gods and asterisk from among you, meaning they had just added God to all the other deities in their life. So they're just gonna sprinkle God in and, and, and lest we think that this doesn't pertain to us because we don't have idols in our house, listen to me, the idea was we're gonna live most of our life not recognizing God, but every now and then we'll go to the temple and offer a sacrifice in hopes. We don't really love God, we've got all these other things going on, but every now and then we'll go over there and offer sacrifice that hopefully he'll be a good luck charm to us and give us what we want. Does that sound familiar with the people of God sometimes? We're not careful. We can be there too. We don't really love God with all our hearts. We just go to him when things get really bad and we want him to be our good luck charm like our divine version of fix-a-flat. When things go bad, we'll pull him out of the trunk and hope he'll fix everything for us. So they've just added God to all the other deities in life and Samuel says, you gotta get rid of all these other idols. Specifically, he talks about the asterisk and and. Don't get too deep in research. It's nasty stuff. You're talking about temple prostitution. They're bringing sexual immorality into religious devotion. It was the nation's pornography of the day. He says, you gotta get rid of this stuff. In other words, if you wanna know the blessing of God, you've got to deal with your sin. You cannot know the blessings of fellowship with God and continue to live in sin. You gotta deal with it. The picture here is God never expected Israel to be perfect, but he expected them to recognize a standard of living by which they were called and they were to struggle with their sin and they were to strive to live holy lives unto the Lord. That's what God wants. He wants men and women who have a hard devotion to struggle, not perfect, but struggling with their sin and striving towards holiness to bring glory to God. So Samuel says, you've got to recognize your sin. You've got to deal with it. And then he says, and, and, and he'll deal with the Philistines. See, the, what he's saying to them is the Philistines are no problem for God. In fact, we've just seen it. God brought the Philistines to their knees in six months, and he could have done it quicker if he'd wanted to. 
single-handedly, no army. He's got the Philistines on their knees begging for God to relent. And he didn't really move a hand. The Philistines are not the problem. It's not the Philistine army that's tripping up Israel. It's Israelite sin that's tripping up Israel. Remember this, Israel never lost a battle because they didn't have a good enough army. They never lost a battle because they didn't have enough money. They never lost a battle because they didn't have enough men. See also Gideon. They only lost battles when they were unfaithful to God. The picture is you can't know my blessing and not deal with your sin. So nation, you gotta deal with this. And so it says in verse three, then uh, verse four, so the sons of Israel removed the bells and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. This is powerful because all of a sudden now we see a turn. Samuel's been preaching this message all along and now all of a sudden they respond. They remove all their other gods. What is happening here? What is the explanation? Well, I think it's a combination of two things. Number one, they finally ran out of themselves. In other words, they've tried everything they can in their own power to fix their situation and everything they've turned to has failed them. I don't know when we'll realize as a nation that what will solve our problems is not another politician and it's not a piece of legislation. The only thing that will fix our nation is to call the nation to repentance and faithfulness to God if we want to know his hand. Unfortunately, there's no politicians running on that platform. I wish one would. They probably wouldn't win, but I'd vote for them. A message of repentance and turning towards God but here, this, this nation, they've run out of themselves. They've realized that everything they've been turning to can't fix their problems. And now, when they're face first in the mud and nothing has worked, they begin to be open. You know, it, it, when we're praying for people that don't know the Lord, if you're really serious about them coming to know the Lord, ask God to humble them. Ask God to do whatever it takes. Because oftentimes it's not until a person comes to a place of brokenness and hopelessness that they'll begin to look up towards Christ. But the second, second factor in this that we have to account for is just the sovereignty of God in the work of salvation. Remember Jesus said in John 3, 8, he says, uh, the, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's interesting to me that sometimes people can preach. How many of you would give testimony this morning that before you gave your, faith, your life to Christ in faith, you heard the gospel many, many times, but it never took root. But then one day, the gospel went forth, and guess what? The wind of God blew into your heart, and he peeled back the blinders, and you saw the reality of the depth of your sin and the glory of Christ, and you turned to him. See, the, the picture here is that Samuel, I love the example of Samuel. Whether they're responding or not, he keeps preaching the same message. That's what we do. Isn't it good to know as you go out to share the gospel that the gospel work and the salvation of that individual that you're sharing with is not dependent upon your ability to articulate the gospel? I don't know about you, but I'm grateful because there's many times I've shared the gospel and thought, Lord, I just messed up the whole thing. We just preach the truth in love. We don't compromise. We keep preaching the truth. Guess what we preach? The same message as Samuel. Repent and turn towards the Lord. And now all of a sudden the wind blows and this nation turns in repentance and faith. Look with me. 
says in verse uh, five, then Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I'll pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we've sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. So they gather up at Mizpah, there they are. They, they pour out water. It was a picture, a libation sacrifice. Often as you would finish your sacrifice, you'd pour out a jug of water, symbolizing that you were completely poured out before the Lord. Isn't this a beautiful picture? They're saying, we're laying down all of our dreams. We're dying to ourselves. We're tired of going our own path. We're pouring ourselves out as an offering. If there's a New Testament verse for this, it's therefore I urge you, brethren, Romans 12, 1, in light of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices sacrifices. Pour yourself out. Paul said that I am being poured out as a drink offering, meaning he had poured his life out. They poured themselves out. Then it says they fasted. Fasting is just you demonstrating in a physical way a spiritual reality, and that's that without God's presence in your life and intervention, you will die. You ever been to that place where you so badly wanted God to intervene in your life that you gave up partaking in physical food because you longed for the power and presence of God in your life. What a powerful picture in this nation. They're saying, we're so desperate for you. We need obedience. We need faithfulness. We need your presence more than we need our next meal. What a powerful picture of this nation. This nation. And it says in verse 7, Now when the, the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So here they are. They've gathered for a prayer meeting. All the nation is gathered for a prayer meeting at Mizpah. And what do the Philistines think? They think they're gathering up to do what? To engage us in battle. They're going to attack us. And so the Philistines say, we better preemptively strike them before they strike us. But Israel, know this, they have not gathered for a battle. They gathered for prayer. They don't have, they didn't, they didn't probably bring their weapons. They probably don't have their implements with them. And they've just spent some measure of time fasting. Now when you fast, are you, any of you that have fasted before, are you normally at your height of energy and, and vitality when you fasted? No. When you fast, you are incredibly weak. But this is exactly the circumstance God wants them in because his power is perfected in our weakness. Can I tell you this morning, you are never more powerful than when you are on your knees in prayer. You are never more powerful than when you've poured your life out to God and you're on your knees and you're fasting to know God's presence in your life. God is demonstrating this nation that the battle is not one with horses and chariots. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The battle belongs to the Lord. Note here, though, they're, they're, they're fearful. If you look back in 1 Samuel 4 in the first battle, they were confident. They were arrogant. They had the good luck charm of the ark with them. They're going to win the day. And they thundered, and the Philistines were frightened. But here, 
the Israelites, in their shame and in their guilt, they'd been humbled by God. You know what they are? They're like sheep led to slaughter. And they're scared. Now, where will they turn? Where will they turn in the midst of their fear? Look at verse eight. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry to the Lord for our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They turn to the Lord in prayer. They turn to Samuel, this prophet of God, and they say to him, you pray for us. They've realized that as the psalmist said in Psalm 16, uh, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you're my Lord. I have no good besides you. This nation has learned that the only hope we have is God. But the good news is, God is all that we need. And so they cry out. Look at verse nine, this is powerful. Samuel took a, a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Uh, Samuel, he says, I'm gonna need a lamb. They said, pray for us. He said, I'm gonna need a lamb. And it can't just be any lamb. It's gotta be a perfect lamb. It's gotta be a suckling lamb and a nursing lamb. It's an infant lamb. It's precious. It's innocent. It's unblemished. It's a perfect, spotless lamb. He said, I'm gonna need a lamb. And he takes that lamb. Can you imagine the picture that he's demonstrating before this nation? He takes that lamb and he slaughters it, he kills it. The, the, the lamb's blood is shed. The picture here is so incredibly clear. He's saying to the nation, that lamb should have been you. That lamb is innocent. That lamb has done nothing wrong. You are guilty. You have sinned. You have disobeyed God. You have rebelled against God. And now we will shed the blood of an innocent lamb. And symbolically through our faith in the lamb who has come and died, we will have salvation and forgiveness. See, Samuel knows that the only way to truly approach God is through a sacrifice. Here, this nation, they're gonna receive the forgiveness of sins not because the lamb was slain. The author of Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews 10, the blood of bulls and goats can't save us. They don't forgive our sins, but it's the substance of Christ that stood behind that symbol that brought this nation salvation. They're trusting in the promise, and the sign of that promise was sacrifice, just as we looked at last week. And they're gonna trust in the Lord with all their heart. And they're gonna know great victory, but you wanna know what I think they said after the battle? The victory came through the lamb that was slain. Boy, you tell about a powerful picture to us. How do you and I achieve every victory in our life? Through the lamb that was slain. The perfect lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So this lamb that is slain and as he's offering, look at verse 10. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. So they're offering, picture Samuel. He's offering the sacrifice. They're probably thinking, hurry up, Samuel. They see the Philistines. They're fixed on the Lord. The Philistines are advancing upon them, and they are just fixing on the Lord. Uh... Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. You know what that means? He's the one who got you this far. He's the one who'll bring you through. 
This nation is fixed on the lamb that was slain. And through their faith in the lamb that was slain, God thunders from heaven. He confuses the army. And it says in verse 11, the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. And then Samuel, verse 12, took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. He sets up a stone. Israel was always setting up stones of remembrance. I love this about Israel. Always setting up these reminders to future generations that the Lord has helped us. They want everybody to know. They want future generations. Every kid that walks by, Ebenezer just means the stone of our help. Every kid that walks by, what's a stone mean? And they were able to tell them about a time when they walked in disobedience and sin, but they turned in repentance and faith, and they got to know the forgiveness of God and his victory through faith, and guess what they probably told about the lamb that was slain. What a powerful story. Don't we all, if we've known Christ for some bit of time, we have powerful stories of how God showed up in our lives. Can I challenge you parents, grandparents, every now and then, sit your children down and tell them about the kindness of the Lord. Tell them about the goodness of God in real and practical ways. Our kids need to hear. We need some memorial stones in our lives to share with our children that God is good and God is faithful. But notice here it says, he, he sets up the stone and he says, thus far, thus far the Lord has helped us. What does that mean? It's a strange uh, statement. You read it at first glance, you think it means that he's not really sure that God's gonna be faithful in the future. And that's certainly not the case. Samuel knew of the faithfulness of God, that God was eternally faithful. But I think the picture here is he, he's not presuming upon the faithfulness of God, he, but he will not presume upon the nation's faithfulness to God. You see, it's a reminder that you and I, Paul said in Philippians, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind means that not only we forget past failures, but we forget past successes. We, we, don't, we don't rest on our laurels that the faith that we had in Christ today that gave us the victory is not enough to sustain us for the battle that we'll face tomorrow. That each day we must get on our knees and know that we're entering into a new battle with new circumstances and only by God's grace and his spirit working through us will we be able to face that battle in a way that honors the Lord. Almost every day for me, it's a prayer that I write out, God, I don't know what will come upon me this day, but you do. But here's what I do know. I will not be able to face it in my own power and give you glory. So God, sustain me. We don't presume upon our faithfulness. We're constantly reminded that we are one step away from stupid. And we rely every day, every moment. There's also here, I think, the idea that he will not presume upon the next generation. Thus far, the Lord has helped us, but there's another generation, they're gonna have to figure it out too. And in fact, we're gonna see Samuel's sons, they're not gonna follow in his path. But don't we as parents, don't we have to tell our children? We tell them about God's faithfulness. We tell our kids, God has helped us. But guess what we know about our kids? They're gonna have to face their Mizpahs. They're gonna have to face their Philistines. And they're gonna have to find out if they're gonna trust in the Lord. The Lord's helped us. 
The reality is my faith, my wife's faith, it can't sustain my boys. They have to do it on their own. It's interesting to me too, a lot of times we're really good at bailing out, and I'm speaking about myself, bailing out our kids in situations that we know in our life made us who we are. We have to be very careful about always bailing out our kids. It's, we don't want our kids to go through what we went through, but isn't it the case that some of the hardest times in our lives and the greatest pains are the things that made us into the men and women of God that we are today? But they have to face theirs. Will they follow the Lord? Look with me on. It says... Uh, in verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued. They did not come anymore within the border of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was a peace uh, between Israel and the Amorites. The part that stuck out to me in that is that the cities which the Philistines had taken were restored. That, you know what they found out? That God was able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that they could ever think, ask, or imagine. Not only did they win the battle that day, but God gave them back all the things that they lost. See, God is really good at, at restoration. How many of you would give testimony today that you walked in sin and disobedience, a lot of circumstances in your life, things got goofed up, but you turned to the Lord, you trusted in the Lord, and maybe not initially, but after years of faithfulness, you saw that God gave you back the years that the locusts had eaten. Some of you will say, boy, the circumstances of my life, I've so messed up things, I've so deteriorated relationships, and I'm not just, listen to me, trust in the Lord. It may not happen tomorrow, but I can guarantee you this, God is really good at making old things new. Jesus is a carpenter, isn't he? He's really good at taking broken things and old things and making them new. In fact, he can make them better than new. Trust in the Lord. God is a God who restores. Then we see a summary of Samuel's life, verse 15. Then Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He perseveres. Verse 16, he used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. You know, I'll read that very quickly. It reminds me that the vast majority of Samuel's life was not made up of Mizpah moments. It wasn't these great battlefield victories. What marked Samuel's life was daily obedience in the ordinary, everyday things. He was just faithful every day. And then in verse 17, his return was to Ramah, for his house was there. And there he judged Israel and built there an altar to the Lord. I love this. This is my favorite picture of Samuel. Samuel goes back to Ramah. You know what Ramah's known for? Nothing. It's a nothing city. It's some rural town. I thought of where my grandparents are from, Lamar, Oklahoma. It's the middle of nowhere. But that was where Samuel was from. And he went back home. Do you know all the great leaders never forgot where they came from? You know, I think Samuel thought, I'm just a little boy from Ramah. And God is great. And he built a little altar there. I, I don't know what it looks like, but I just picture it in my mind. Maybe this is going beyond scripture. Forgive me if it is. But I, I just picture Samuel with a little, little house. And over on the side of the house on a little hill, he's got an altar. And every day, 
As the sun would rise, I picture Samuel going out before that altar. The altar was a place of sacrifice and worship. And every day, Samuel would go and he would sacrifice and worship unto God. The picture here is that Samuel knew that all the blessings in his life were because of the goodness of the Lord. You know, David in his swan song, 2 Samuel uh, 23, we'll get there in about five years, we'll uh, <laughs> promise. But 2 Samuel 23, David gathers his family up. It's not his last words, but it's kind of his final words to his family. And you know his favorite title, what he wants to be known by? The sweet psalmist of Israel. He didn't want to be known as a great king. He didn't want to be remembered as a great warrior. You know what he wanted to be known as? A guy who worshiped the Lord. Just loved the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you find yourself in a place of brokenness and maybe a place of despair, maybe a very dark day and maybe it's because of your own sinfulness. You've walked in rebellion. Can I tell you, God is really good at taking the the spaces of our lives that seem to be very dark and hurtful and turning them into worshipful places. But it happens as we submit to the Lord when we respond to him in repentance and faith. Every person in scripture that made the slightest turn towards Christ in repentance and faith, God received them and restored them and forgave them. Turn to Christ. Let this be your Mizpah moment. Maybe you are lamenting today. Let that place become a place of victory through the lamb that was slain. You know, I couldn't do this passage when we mention Ebenezer without thinking of that great hymn, Come Now, Come Now Fount of Every Blessing. Um, one of my favorite hymns, and so it has Ebenezer in it, and I thought, we gotta sing it. Y'all wanna sing that song together? Why don't, why don't y'all stand with me? I'm gonna try, I'm not... I'm not a great vocalist, but I love to sing. Y'all join in with me. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. And call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. 
Father, we thank you for the blood, the precious blood of Christ. It's through Christ and his sacrificial death that we know victory today. God, if there's anybody here that doesn't know victory, the victory of Christ, the victory over sin, Satan, and death through faith in Jesus Christ, God, please, we know salvation is your work. Draw them. We plead with you, God. Draw them by your grace. God, for those of us that do know you, we know prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so we pray together, take our hearts, Lord, take and seal them. Seal them for thy courts above. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.